Welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. And in every episode we've done, whether we're talking to an artist, a politician, an activist, everyone has been a supporter of the basic income. But this week, we actually have a dissenter. So a couple months back, there was a debate on basic income that was organized by Intelligence Squared. It put Andy Stern and Charles Murray arguing for basic income up against Jared Bernstein and Jason Furman arguing against it. And most of the debate focused on the pros and cons of universal basic income. But one thing that popped up was Jared Bernstein mentioned that he was actually a fan of a jobs guarantee program, which would be another ambitious plan that falls pretty far outside the scope of the sort of legislation that has been considered recently in the U.S., also aimed at providing economic security, but looking different than something like an unconditional basic income. So Jim sat down with Jared Bernstein and discussed their feelings on on the basic income and a jobs guarantee and a bunch of other topics. From my listening, I found that Jared Bernstein has a lot of the same goals and a lot of the same perspectives as as people in the basic income movement, but comes at them from something of a different angle and different experience, and that comes out in the conversation. So without further ado, this is Jim Pugh and Jared Bernstein on the Basic Income Podcast. I am here with Jared Bernstein, a senior fellow at the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. Jared, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So many of our listeners may have seen the basic income debate that was held by Intelligence Squared back in March between Andy Stern and Charles Murray arguing for a basic income as the social safety net of the future, and then you and Jason Furman arguing against that idea. One of the things you mentioned there was the idea of a jobs guarantee program in in the U.S. So I'm just curious, can you tell us a little bit more about how you think a program like that might work? Well, sure. Let me start by saying a little bit about why I think we we need it. Um, as we speak, the unemployment rate is quite low nationally. It's 4.4%. And most economists, and I'm someone who thinks about the questions of full employment a lot, will tell you that's full employment. That's certainly what the Federal Reserve would say. But in fact, uh, we know that there are pockets of weak labor demand, where even at a low national unemployment rate, there are parts of the country where people can't find enough work. And so I've observed that even at full employment, sometimes when labor demand is insufficient, uh, you need to think about a, uh, a program to fill that gap. Uh, the way I think of it is uh, we, we kind of all, uh, all agree, or at least kind of the economics community agrees, that when credit markets freeze up, you need a lender of last resort, and that's the Federal Reserve. Well, when the job market fails to provide adequate opportunities for all comers, um, I think you need a job creator of last resort. And there's a couple of different ways to do that, which I can get into in a minute, but I just wanted to give you the motivation first. And I know I'm based out in the Bay Area, and particularly around here, there's a lot of new companies that are, are basing their approach to work very much on a task-based model, not seeing it as full employment, but rather seeing this as smaller sets of work that, that people uh, people will take on in the quote-unquote gig economy. Um, so I'm curious to hear, is, is that something that you feel like connects here? Is that something entirely separate? It's definitely uh, a connection. Uh, there- 
there's definitely a connection there, but I think it's separate in the sense that what I'm talking about are places where there's just not enough work for people who want and need it. Now, in the case of the gig economy, there may be not enough uh, steady work or work of a kind of structure that people want. Like if somebody wants a, a steady job where they know their hours, um, and that the flexibility of the gig economy or maybe even the insecurity therein just doesn't appeal to them. Uh, that's a kind of a job quality issue or a structure of employment issue. So I'm talking about something that's kind of different than that, which is parts of the, I mean, think of the Rust Belt. You've certainly heard about that in the context of, of the Trump story, but also you know, there are neighborhoods and urban areas that are kind of like job deserts. There's just not mm -hmm. enough jobs there for folks who want them. Uh, so I can think of two, two ways to deal with that. The first is um, a real direct job creation program by the federal government, uh, where the federal government uh, creates gainful employment for people. And I, I do think in terms of not just job quantity, but job quality. So these jobs have to be adequately remunerative. Uh, and the other is a subsidized model, where the government subsidizes employers to uh, hire uh, workers, uh, sometimes to the tune of 80 or 90 percent, uh, that is the government would pick up 80 or 90 percent of the wage for some fixed amount of time. Uh, I know a lot more about the second one because we did something like that during the Recovery Act when I was working for the Obama administration. But those are the two broad models. One is where the government directly creates job almost in the spirit of the New Deal, and the other is uh, more of a subsidized employment model. So if we were to pursue a, a jobs guarantee program, do you have any sense what sort of timeline this would be on? Is this something that we're talking about? I mean, with the big caveat that who knows what will be happening with the federal government over the next few years, but is this something that seems achievable in the relatively short term, or is this more of a, a longer term, something 10, 20 plus years from now? With a rational, functional government, uh, at least the subsidized employment idea could be ramped up quickly. And interestingly, this is not very well known, there are a number of programs like that in place already. It's the VISTA jobs program, there's a number of youth employment programs. These are all very small programs. But again, during the Recovery Act, so in 2009, we quickly ramped up a subsidized employment program. It was under the aegis of the TANF program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. And uh, there was something like maybe under $2 billion, I think I have that right, that was assigned to a program where in states, it, it was actually uh, more of a kind of a flow of, of resources than a program, but basically we said to states, you can use this money, which we're ramping up for TANF because we're in this really deep recession, you can use this money to subsidize employment for uh, low-wage people who are facing labor market barriers, can't get into the job market. Uh, you have to be careful not to displace somebody else, so you can't go to, a, uh, an employer can't say, oh, well, mm -hmm. uh, so you're fired, uh, <laughs> but Ricky, you're hired, <laughs> so you have to be careful to avoid this. You know, there, there are um, ways in which you have to craft this thing to make it most effective, but we found that during the Recovery Act, uh, this, this program created over 250,000 jobs in a bunch of different states. Um, subsidizing employment, again, often to the tune of 70, 80, 90 percent, sometimes for three months, six months, maybe a year. And after the subsidized employment ended, because it did, it was a time-limited program, 
a number of those workers were able to stay on into the labor market. So it was kind of clear. It, it looked like in some cases the program helped them get over a labor market barrier that was blocking them. Hmm. So during the Intelligence Squared debate, you raised several concerns about universal basic income as a policy to pursue. Uh, for those who weren't able to watch the debate, could you share with us what what your main concerns on that front are? Yeah, I would say my main concern uh, comes from the proposal by Charles Murray, who was one of my uh, opponents in that debate. <laughs> so he was on the other side. And he's arguing for a form of UBI that I am absolutely sure would significantly worsen and deepen uh, poverty and economic insecurity. Uh, what Murray wants to do, and I'm not telling tales out of school here because I've debated him numerous times on this, so uh, you know, sometimes it's not fair to argue with somebody who's not there to, to uh, defend themselves, but uh, Charles knows exactly where I'm coming from here. Uh, he wants to essentially take all of the resources that we're devoting to um, both the safety net and to some of our social insurance programs, Social Security, Medicare, and divvy them up per capita across the whole population. So make it a universal basic income paid for by aggregating all the resources we're currently spending on uh, the safety net and social welfare program and, and, and social insurance programs. And if you obviously the arithmetic is quite simple because you're going to be really uh, seriously diluting the resources that you give uh, that, that are already targeted and pretty well targeted, I argued, in that debate uh, at folks in you know, the bottom half, the bottom third of the income scale. So if you take resources that are, are well focused, well targeted, and as I argued that night, having their intended effect and pretty effective, uh, and you give them to you know 320 million people, <laughs> the population of the U.S., um, you're very much going to dilute the program. So that's probably my main objection to at least that version of the plan. So I, I do think that something that's become more apparent within the space of people advocating for basic income in, in recent months is that there are two quite different views on what the policy could be. And what you just described, kind of the repeal and replace model, tends to be favored much more by libertarians. That's a phrase we hear a lot these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but often with the idea of having something radically simple or being one of the the main things that attracts people to that version of it. On the flip side, you have a more progressive view, which is more the support and strengthen model of something that would be providing basic income and perhaps replacing some programs that exist today that, that seem fully redundant if, if people are receiving um, a, a basic level of cash every month but done with the intention of making sure that people are not being left worse off than they were previously. So I'd be curious to, to hear your perspective on, on that vision of the policy. Well, there are aspects of that vision that I like and share. Uh, as I said that night, mostly focused on some of the work of Andy Stern, who uh, I'm sure is known to your audience. He was, he was the other <clears throat> quote opponent. Mm -hmm can't really think of Andy as an opponent because he's been fighting for social justice for as long as I've known him, and that's been many decades, uh, is a version that kind of says, let's build off of what we have, and, and uh, there are many ways in which I'm supportive of that. Um, however, while I think it's perfectly legitimate to suspend political disbelief 
uh, when you have these debates, even the jobs debate we had earlier about uh, um, guaranteed or subsidized employment, uh, as I said, this Congress isn't going to do that. So uh, I'm always uh, happy to suspend disbelief. I think there's a question of just how far out of the box do you want to go. And one of the things that worries me is that uh, if you start uh, opening up this opportunity to take resources from one program and give them to a bunch of people, and there is a U in UBI. In other words, there's a universal aspect to it. Mm -hmm. So this this dilution problem, I think, is a real one. Uh, unless you're really talking about adding significant new resources. Well, we're in a climate where that's really tough to do. Um, and one of the things that I think I recognize, recently wrote about this in a piece called UBI and I, um, <laughs> is that many of the programs that I think are well-targeted and, and working pretty well, not, not perfectly by a long shot, and I suspect you and I could have a good conversation about <laughs> how to improve some of the safety net programs uh, that, that uh, are existent, but they're underfunded. So I would, before I would think about kind of building on top of what we have, I'd probably want to get the uh, earned income tax credit to be a lot more robust. I'd want the child tax credit to be a lot more robust and to start instead of at $3,000 of earnings to start at zero and perhaps be fully refundable and not conditional on work. So there's a kind of a child allowance idea that I've been uh, getting more interested in that uh, has has some uh, share some characteristics with the UBI, but it's, it's just targeted at kids. Um, there's ways in which I'd want uh, food stamps to be, uh, SNAP to be, um, uh, maybe expand benefits, particularly in a downturn, which was something that worked in the recession. And I could go on. There, there, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I very much, very, very much want to see a quality preschool program in place. I think we, we just really hurt the potential of a lot of kids who really need a quality uh, um, opportunity when it comes to, to preschool. So there's a bunch of stuff I'd probably put in place before I started thinking about building on top of, 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 uh, of what we, we have in, in the spirit of UBI. And again, I'm always worried about the dilution problem. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I do think that you in the UBI has to, uh, something that gives me pause sometimes. So one thing I'd be curious about is it does seem that there is, at least to some degree, a, a chicken and egg issue around how how big of or how radical of, of a policy proposed versus what's what's realistic today. And so I think that's something that's as basic income has become at least to some degree more of a mainstream idea over the last couple of years people who support it thinking about, well, what are the stepping stone policies that move us in that direction? And I think some of what you just mentioned, actually, are ones are policies that, that are discussed there, something like a child allowance, mm -hmm. um, programs that are providing unconditional cash um, in, in different scenarios. Um, so I don't know, It's and I realize that this is, we're in some degrees conflating two worlds here, the economic side and the kind of political marketing side, but um, if you have any thoughts around, do you think maybe that fighting for something as radical as basic income might actually make some of these uh, some of these policies that you were discussing possibly easier if we're, if we're shifting the debate window? Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. I mean, one has to be very careful to not negotiate with yourself mm -hmm. and not say, oh, I don't like you know, super progressive idea X because it's too progressive. 
I like some other idea because uh, that that's you know half as progressive or half as um, ambitious. Because if you <laughs> realize that you're already starting on a very tough uh, battlefield, um, it, you should uh, you know negotiation 101 suggests that you should um, start from a very ambitious place. So uh, what you're saying you know resonates with me. I think one of the problems that UBI has is this kind of. <laughs> Some of my friends are libertarians, so this sounds, <laughs> this sounds worse than it than I mean it. But this kind of infection from the uh, libertarian side, mm -hmm. where there are those who are just gunning for you know what they call the welfare state. I mm -hmm. mean, there are people in you know this debate, in this UBI debate, who view it as a vehicle by which they can undermine social insurance, by which they can undermine the safety net. I mean, read Charles Murray. Literally, mm -hmm. on page three, he says, you know. The, uh, the, the safety net is a horrible failure. Um, it is imploding. It's it, it, it's 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 crashing in on itself. And before it explodes or implodes or whatever the words are, uh, we have to do something different. Well, that's all completely wrong. Uh, I think that not not to say that these programs are perfect, but if you go back to my rap during the Intelligence Squared debate, I tried to provide pretty nuanced analysis of the way in which these programs are having uh, their intended effect working uh, very well uh, in terms of uh, staving off a uh, uh, kind of privation that's faced by many low-income people, um, but also having some very positive long-term effects. Medicaid, food stamp, earned income credit. We now have people who've been on, who, who were exposed to these programs as children, and we followed them over their life cycle. We can look at their outcomes as adults and we see um, earnings advantages, uh, better health outcomes, better educational outcomes. So these programs aren't just consumption, they're also investment. Now every time I say this, I've been careful to say that, you know they're far from perfect. So yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying that there's not work to be done there. But I do think one of the challenges uh, while I take your point, about the importance of being ambitious and not being, um, not 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 self-negotiating uh, uh, because of political constraints. Uh, I also think uh, you got to be mindful of of these, you know, kind of dark forces in this debate. Going back to the jobs guarantee idea, one aspect of basic income that appeals to a lot of advocates is opening up new types of opportunity for work. Um, the ones that come up most often, I would say, are entrepreneurship, giving people a, a runway to be able to pursue a new idea for business, but also recognition of unpaid labor, particularly caregiving work that happens at home. Is that something that if, if you were to pursue a jobs guarantee program, you might be missing that gain? Yeah, I think those are legitimate concerns. I must say that the UBI programs that I've seen articulated, and I think it's important not to talk in the abstract, but to look at the kinds of programs that an Andy Stern or Charles Murray is, is writing down there, um, they don't look to me like they really afford uh, people uh, the kinds of resources they would need to uh, explore much in terms of entrepreneurship. For that, I think you just need much more liquid credit markets and the ability of people to um, 
access those those markets, uh, perhaps they need a, some sort of a backstop, a loan guarantee, if they don't have the wealth or the resources or the networks to collateralize the kinds of loans they need. So I'd probably approach that more through credit markets than through a UBI. Hmm. Uh, in terms of the work thing, so you know, one of the things I don't know that I've mentioned is um, I'm pretty sensitive to two aspects of, of, of this debate. One is that the uh, U.S. approach to anti-poverty policy has consistently become more and more oriented towards work. Um, now, again, this is sort of a trend that you could decide to accept in your policy thinking or push back on. Uh, but there are many aspects of that uh, a trend that, that kind of makes sense to me. Um, I started out about 150 years ago in this business as a social worker in New York City. and. Uh, Ever since then and, and since then, uh, I've recognized that a lot of people, and particularly low-income people raising kids, um, really want to have uh, good, secure, high-quality, remunerative jobs. And uh, the problem that many of them face is sometimes inadequate uh, skills, uh, but just as often um, inadequate demand for labor. And one of the things that really gets, you know, sticks in my craw in this debate is this conservative mantra that all you have to do to get a good job is to want a good job. The only thing that's holding you back is, you know, you're lazy or you're dependent on, on a welfare program. Um, the demand side of the labor market, you, uh, really, the, avail the opportunities and availability of, 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 of uh, good jobs, that, that's something that I've... Um, been very sensitive to uh, the, the insufficient uh, numbers of throughout my work. So that kind of motivates me in that space. So it seems like on one hand, we have some people who may not currently have access to a job who really want one. But on the other hand, there may be people who are interested in entrepreneurship or in engaging in labor that isn't paid in today's economy. Could there be some sort of hybrid model that actually can combine a jobs guarantee and a negative income tax in order to be uh, serving both of those populations? There could be, but I think one of the things you run into there is the kind of income constraint that you know, Jason Furman and I focused on at the uh, Intelligence Square debate. And again, I'm, I recognize that it's a little squirrely to keep sort of raising these political hurdles where you want to, uh, <laughs> but I, I think that the job guarantee is more in sync, I'd say I know this, with anti-poverty policy, which is becoming more and more work-oriented, so in that sense, while everything is a hugely heavy political lift, it's left less of a heavy political lift than a UBI, uh, at least a UBI that's not done in the libertarian or Murray sense, which just undermines uh, stuff we're doing already. So I think in a way you're saying, well, you know, the hybrid sort of says, well, let's do both. And if we had unlimited resources, I'd say, yeah, let's do both and a bunch and a bunch more too. <laughs> but in a world of constrained resources, um, I've kind of at least set my sights on a job guarantee, which I think is actually a pretty uh, already ambitious and progressive uh, program. Now, perhaps, uh, as in the child allowance case, which is uh, I view as, as as not conditioned on work, and as you you and I think agreed earlier, that's a uh, that is certainly a step in, in the direction I think you you, you want to take things. Right. Uh, there may be other there may be other ways to go about that. Maybe other ways to get at uh, conditioning income not on work. 
but I, I, I'd say before I was too interested in, in, in a hybrid that had a, a UBI attached to a job guarantee, I'd work on a job guarantee. All right. Well, Jared, this has been great. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. Great. All right. Well, thank you again. That was Jim Pugh and Jared Bernstein on the Basic Income Podcast. I think it's pretty clear that Bernstein comes from a perspective of fighting for and defending these programs, such as the Earned Income Tax Credit, Medicare, food stamps. And he's defending them against people who often argue that they're worthless and that we should just get rid of them. And so if we're going to propose something big and new that might replace at least some of these programs, we do need to make the case that a basic income is an improvement on what we have now. I think that's exactly right. I think that there's a fear of, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. And, and I think it was clear also from the discussion that ultimately political viability is, is coming into play here. Despite generally talking outside the realm of what's possible today, he had major concerns about how far from our current political thinking we actually get. And so in some ways, I, I think we're coming at this in from qualitatively different perspectives. Are we actually talking about something that feels more achievable with the way people think about things today? Or are we talking about this North Star vision of, of where we ultimately want to end up? And then recognizing that it's going to take us potentially decades to get there, but saying that that's where we want to keep our eye and, and see what steps we can take in that direction. And honestly, I find the fact that we are maybe talking on a decade's perspective to be liberating because we don't need to be thinking about what is politically viable in the next five years. We need to be thinking about what do we want going forward? What are the best policies? And I think you can draw a parallel to healthcare. There's a debate around do we tweak and fix the system we have now or do we move something towards something like universal healthcare? And I, I would think the basic income debate is pretty analogous. Do we you know, improve systems like the earned income tax credit, or do we move toward this North Star vision of a basic income for everyone? One thing that basic income supporters may have noticed is that we never actually talked about automation during the conversation. And, and that was actually quite intentional. Automation came up during the Intelligence Square debate, and there was just complete lack of alignment. Bernstein isn't sold that automation is going to have a drastic impact on the workspace that we have today and that there will be new jobs created. And so, I mean, we could have gone back and forth on that, but we're, we're really not going to come to any sort of consensus there. I think that if uh, w when we do start to see a drastic impact from automation and when, and when things when you can really feel that more tangibly, I think that is going to lead to a different conversation, but it's not one that we're really going to be able to get to a conclusion on where we are today. And again, I would just take that zoomed out perspective of think 10, 20 years from now, this automation conversation is going to be quite different, and we do need to be thinking about how we might prepare for that if you know, certain predictions come true about just how intelligent, artificial intelligence is going to get. I, I think for me, really, the big takeaway here is, e even though Bernstein was skeptical about it, it seems like there may be, that, that these aren't competing policies. Jobs guarantee and basic income if, if you're looking at basic income and your motivation is really guaranteeing our economic security, we're fighting for the same things here. And so I worry about setting these up as head-to-head -head 
contestants. Because I think that if we're actually pushing for big policies that that aim towards that value of of making sure everyone has enough to get by, we can be open-minded here and we can think about, all right, different scenarios, what are situations where guaranteeing employment might be really attractive to people and what are situations where an unconditional payment that, that opens up opportunities and spaces that really haven't existed before uh, actually could could be um, the game changer that, that many of us think it is. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. We encourage you to subscribe on iTunes and please do leave a rating or review while you're there. It'll help other people find the podcast. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>